Clear prop. Star 73, Cherokee number 2, following twin traffic, 3-mile final. One trailer Bravo, Rakesford in runway 25, going 4-mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co-host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby. How are you? I am fantastic as always. You know, we have probably had maybe the worst five days of weather in Houston in a long, long time. Two monsoon storms. I think in a matter of 48 hours, we got about nine inches of rain at the flight school. Uh, The airport was almost underwater, and the temperature kept dropping, getting colder and colder, and we... Had a listener reach out and tell us a story that happened to them not too long ago, and we're going to talk a lot about ice today. There's no ice where you're at, is there, Wally? There's not, but um, I'm in beautiful Hawaii, but I did take off yesterday from Houston, and uh, on our takeoff, we did have our engine any ice on, so it was it was raining, and it was below 10 degrees Celsius, which is our marker for when we uh, take off with any ice on. Wow. So you probably don't use that very often leaving Houston, Texas, but uh, it's not something we really think about much about, think much about here. And I think that's what the listener was reaching out for. Like, hey, this happened to me. I want you all to talk about it and try to help other people maybe not make the same mistake that I made. And hopefully it helps everybody out. So the listener reached out and said he's got this great story to tell. And we tried to encourage him to be on the show and he uh decided to take a pass he has a thick accent and decided he would let us tell his story so dominic thanks for letting us use your story and uh hopefully we keep making good shows if people keep giving us content so pretty typical ga pilot in my opinion did a bunch of flying in 2011 and 2012 actually went to this flight school united flight systems here in spring texas and life happened, kids happened, people started growing up. I think uh, his flight that he talks about, his daughter was with him. They were going on a college visit. So she's probably part of the reason why he stopped flying back in those days. And during COVID, he got the dream back, was able to get into the aircraft again, wrapped up his private pilot certificate, and then uh, did what some do and bought a, bought an airplane. He bought a Mooney and put a bunch of fancy equipment in that Mooney and he started flying, building time. And Wally gave him his instrument check ride actually. And, um, loves the show, talks highly of the show and wanted us to tell the story. So it wasn't very long ago, maybe a month or so, a couple of weeks, he took his daughter and we're going to fly to Arkansas for a college visit. And on that trip, He did all of his normal cross-country planning, knew the weather, looked at a number of weather sources, and he knew that it was going to be 40-ish degrees in his destination, and weather looked good along the way. Weather Breather said it looked good along the way, and they took off. I think, depending on where he went in Arkansas exactly, that's probably two-and-a-half, three-hour flight um, from Houston, Texas. Uh, assuming that the winds were fairly calm and along the flight no issues everything going good flying around 8,000 feet ish and gets to uh, kind of the Texas border 
and starts to make a descent on just just north of just north of Texas and noticed on that descent that there was a little bit of ice accumulating in the windshield and he thought that was odd uh, knew knew that they were on the descent to 40 degrees and didn't figure it was a problem kind of in and out of uh, of a little bit of moisture and then all of a sudden he has a dynon in his in his mooney he said and the dynon just went nuts went berserk and a bunch of the numbers were not showing numbers that weren't realistic low airspeed and it took him a minute to really get his get a handle on the situation he he, he reflected that it could have been really bad but all of a sudden the dynon warned him to turn on pedo heat or check his pedo heat he checked his pedo heat and came out of the layers of clouds kind of between two layers of clouds and was able to, able to gather himself he could see the ground through the bottom layer of clouds but it was still the, the visibility wasn't great and he let the pedo heat warm up let the pedo heat clear the ice off the pedo static or the pedo source and then everything came back on the dynon system and he really on the phone call shared the story i know he shared it online I think he's really trying to help people. I think he knows he made a mistake by not turning the pedo heat on sooner, but he said it wasn't on the checklist. It wasn't, you know, from a standpoint of on descent, it doesn't call out check pedo heat. He thinks there's a number of things that pilots can think about and learn from this mistake or learn from this incident type thing. And that's always use pedo heat, invisible moisture like that. I think, I think he knew that there was, 40 degrees on the ground and knew it was probably colder above that, but I don't think he put two and two together and necessarily calculated that it would be icing in that situation. Um, but it did. I think he, he, his other takeaway to me was that we understand our instruments and what those instruments will report in failure type conditions. The, the Dynon gave him a lot of information he had never seen before. Lots of failure stuff. And he's done a lot of studying to be much better with that. While you and I did a show, it seems like forever ago now, called uh, Every Switch, Every Button. And it was all about really understanding all that equipment in your aircraft. And there's a whole another show we could probably do on the electronic equipment and the readouts and the information that those give us. Uh, but he was very much pointed about... He's done the study. He knows what all's connected to that system now and what those emergencies would produce on that Dynon now. And then really understanding known icing. He got some criticism or feedback on the web that, hey, you shouldn't have been flying in that. It was known icing. And uh, maybe you shouldn't tell your story like this, but I think he was misinformed about what was known icing. And I've done a little research since we got to thinking about doing this show and there's a uh, letter of interpretation from the FAA and I'll to not uh, not not mess it up I'll read it to the, the section about it but in this letter of interpretation known ice in quotes involves the situation where ice formation is actually detected or observed known icing conditions in quotes involve instead circumstances where a reasonable pilot would expect a substantial likelihood of ice formation on the aircraft based upon all information available to that pilot. And so that 
that's a good, vague FAA answer, Wally, if I've ever seen one or heard one. But it does constitute that if you know it's possibly to be freezing at a level where there's visible moisture, a reasonable pilot would, would have to think that ice would accumulate or, or get on the airframe. So good information. I'm thrilled that he shared the information with us and we figured we would do a, a little bit more talking about ice on the aircraft and uh, some things to think about. What are your thoughts or reactions, Wally, as you hear the full story in detail and take away from it for pilots? I'm, I'm, I've, I've come up with three uh, thoughts that I just jotted down as I listened to what you, you had just said. The first thing I want to I want to address is is uh, you know when people share stories like this when when people are just jumping on them and saying how stupid could you be uh, you know this is ridiculous all you're going to do is suppress the next person from sharing a story and these stories as long as they have a good outcome, well, I mean, you know, this, in this case they lived, yeah, so it was a good outcome. But we're, we're trying to learn. We are trying to keep people from dying in airplanes. And the more stories like this that we can hear, the more uh, research, the more, more training we can do, it's just better. It's just better for everybody. So, you know, to, to the guy who wants to jump on uh, the social media thread and say what an idiot you are I, I just I just want to you know pull that keyboard away from you there's an old story about at, at my airline many 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 years ago there was an aircraft accident um, that, that didn't have any fatalities or anything but it, it was an accident and it was kind of a big deal and at the end of the day someone asked the captain would you have done anything differently if you know if you could start over again he said yeah i would have called in sick and you know no kidding no kidding i mean if if you said to this person who who shared the story well if you had to do it over again would you have taken the trip of course he's going to say no i wouldn't have taken the trip because now i you know i i know the outcome so um you know we need to encourage people to be open about these things and i i really don't feel that the fa is going to come down on someone like this um you know i think it's a it's a positive thing when we can tell because uh, we all have these stories we all have them and um you know at some point we become brave and we can we can come out and say well okay well i did this one time and it's it's good for all of us to hear these stories. Um, you know, the the second thing, you know, uh, talking about instrument or systems failures in airplanes, I think when we know exactly what the what has happened, I think most of us can can handle the situation fairly well. The problem a lot of times is identifying the problem okay this is happening on the airplane and i know it's not supposed to do that what's going on is it you know do i have an engine problem or is it an electrical problem or is it a flight control problem i don't know so so half the problem is just identifying the problem that's one thing that that he talks about this is getting some strange readings on the dynon and thinking geez what is going on here so he, he makes an excellent point in in 
you know, the the fact that we we should know what these failures are or what the symptoms are of of something. You know, uh, uh, you know, we we have uh, uh, we can use Google now to to diagnose medical problems. Hey, my my leg hurts and it feels like this and it it probably gets you pretty close to to the right diagnosis um uh, but you don't really have that in the airplane um you know when you're trying to troubleshoot when you're trying to figure out what your problem is some some systems failures are very you know when the engine quits the engine quits i think most of us know that okay the engine quit let's try to restart it if it won't restart let's put it down in a a field somewhere um but this is one of those that gee what is going on here? Well, we talk a lot about this on how we train and what's the greater good of how we train. You know, I talk about this a lot. There's a huge value in the simulator because when you fail something, it fails like it does in real life, right? The if you if you take the vacuum system and kill it, well, the vacuum gauge goes to zero really really quick. How much of us really? How many of us really scan that every? every time we're looking in the cockpit on a VFR day to see that. But that attitude indicator kind of slowly starts cocking, turning, kind of loses its lose, loses its rigidity. And it doesn't, you know, it'll make you start feeling sick if you pay attention to it because you know you're not turning, but you're used to that only moving when it's turning, right? Well, when we train a lot of times, we just put a suction cup over it or a post-it note that's easy to know that the attitude indicator or the vacuum system failed when we when we call out as instructors or pilots vacuum system failure and we cover up the, the things that are driven by the vacuum system. Much like your engine example, that's pretty freaking obvious. But in IMC, on a system that he's clearly invested a significant amount of money in, that Dynon, it starts giving you a just a flurry of changing information that doesn't make any sense that's very odd that would be very discomforting in imc um i forgot to say it but they were in daylight conditions man i don't like night imc at all in a good working aircraft never mind one that was giving me crazy information so daylight was a huge help no question but you know it's the the way we train and if you have that opportunity to train in something that gives you more of a realistic failure in whatever type of equipment that you use in your aircraft, by all means, jump on that opportunity for sure. What you said is the one reason why simulator training is just so incredibly valuable because you can do that. I mean, what what does a pitot tube blockage look like, real world? Um, you know, would it be valuable to go out and cover up the pitot tube and go fly a flight? It probably would, but it's dangerous. So uh, we're probably not going to do that. So, um, you know, that's something you can do in the simulator, and you can do that. Um, You know, this is a a side story, but I remember back in the late 80s, I remember it was was raining like crazy in Houston, and, and I got a call from a friend of mine, and he said, he said, man, we just left the Astros game, and um, it's flooding down here, and uh, the car stalled out, and we're, I'm, I'm at this gas station. Can, can you come down and pick us up? 
and it was it was about midnight. I got got dressed and I went down and I I picked these people up and and uh, we were driving home and and my friend said um, it was it, it it was a car that had a digital uh, speedometer, which back in the late '80s was kind of the cutting edge of technology. Yeah, it was. And his comment to me was. I knew I was in trouble when the speedometer said I was going 888 miles per hour. And so, I mean, there, there's, that's just an example of what happens when these instruments, uh, you know, when, when we have certain failures. Um, but anyway, so that just goes back to, to know every switch, every gauge. You know, one thing I ask, and, and, and I'm going to give away a secret of what I ask on check rides and, um, uh, if you're going to take a check ride with me, uh, you'll get this right, and and I don't care because I think it is it is real important. I think I think a lot of people really struggle with this. First of all, in the aviation world, let's just accept the fact that the aviation world works on the centigrade system. So let's just get rid of Fahrenheit. Can we just? not even use those temperatures and you're going to see where I'm going with this. Um, I will with with my instrument students, with my commercial, with my with my privates, you know, we talk about a cross country flight. And that 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 first point that we're going to is usually a couple hundred miles away. And I will, you know, we'll talk about weather. So I will I will say, okay, let's pick an airport that is about halfway between here and where we're going. And they'll pull out the, the chart, whether it's um, electronic or paper, and they'll say, okay, it's airport ABC. I'll, and I'll say, okay, what is the weather right now at airport ABC? And, of course, they'll pull it up and they'll say, well, okay, the clouds are such and such temperature altimeter winds and we'll we'll talk about diverting to abc and i'll say okay well if we were going to divert to abc airport um, based on the current weather what runway would we use and and that sort of thing i will then ask them what where the freezing level is at airport abc okay and let's talk about lapse rate and freezing level and this is assuming a standard atmosphere the lapse rate standard temperature lapse rate is two degrees per thousand feet so all you've got to do is take the temperature let's say the temperature is 12 degrees again we're talking Celsius 12 degrees Celsius 12 divided by 2 I think most of well no I I I'm I'm not I'm maybe giving us too much credit. But I most people can figure out 12 divided by 2 is 6. So the freezing level is 6000 feet above the ground. So now look at airport elevation of airport ABC I mean it's 495 feet. I think we could say that the freezing level is at approximately 6500 feet. Now, there could be inversions, there could be some weird weather phenomena, but a standard atmosphere, I mean a standard lapse rate, the freezing level is going to be at approximately 6,500 feet. I, I watch people pull out calculators to figure this out. 
Um, you know, uh, you know, heck, if it if it's an odd number, just make it an even number. If it's 19 degrees, make it 20 degrees, and let's call the freezing level at about 10,000 feet. Um, but a lot of people struggle with this. Yeah, that's an interesting point. We we I've had debates with people about standard lapse rate, and they're like, oh, the the atmosphere is really not standard. But isn't it a really good rule of thumb? Like, would you really risk it? over 500 feet in an aluminum aircraft like and that then that comes to personal minimums for me right my personal minimum on isis i tell everyone there is no gray line it's ten thousand feet i'm not going to get within ten thousand feet of the icing levels and that's pretty much me saying i'm never going to fly when there's visible moisture and freezing temperatures because i don't have to i don't have to go fly wally you don't have that choice you know they make you get in that plane and and take people wherever you got to go but i have that choice there's really no reason for me to get in a plane if the icing level is even at ten thousand feet because one my plane probably can't even get there but i'm just not gonna go that day to say your personal minimums on icing level is a thousand feet and then try and cut the cut that line that thin that's pretty tough to do if you don't have icing equipment on your airplane uh, and and things can change. So have a line, have a hard line, and make it make it a good distance from what would be the known icing level or considerably known icing level right, for right. sure. And, and you know, to ma- what, do you, what do we need to make ice? We need water and we need freezing temperatures. So if, uh, if it's a clear day, clear day, and it's two degrees – and it's there in the cloud in the sky between my airport that I'm going from where I'm going to to where I'm going, well, you're not going to get ice. But one thing to consider, you know, a lot of times, it, you know, they say the, the, the ceiling, there's a, a overcast layer of 8,000 feet, and you say, well, I'm going to go at 4,500 feet, so I'm well below that. Um, that's fine as long as there's no water falling out of those clouds. Because if there's moisture coming out of the clouds, you know, it comes down. You Now you've got either water or ice or something hitting your airplane, and that could be an, that could be an issue as well. No doubt. The uh, And then there's a whole other story about super cold droplets that could be very, very painful for these small aircraft. Um, let's talk about the ways that, that ice does impact these aircraft. And we're talking GA. We're not talking your jet engine anti-freezing equipment that you have we're talking 25 to 3,000 pound single engine trainers that we mostly fly in or something we might be all buying and I think the biggest one is is got to be weight right and with something that I know as a young pilot meaning young in time of piloting I wouldn't have thought of that but you know just a thin layer of ice call it a quarter of an inch over all that aluminum surface it could create a ton no no pun intended a ton of weight on an aircraft for sure a lot lot more than six pounds per wing right right you know and and it's it's not the guy though the weight is is a consideration but we're now really changing the shape of the wing so you know we're whoever design that shape of that wing i mean uh some uh aeronautical engineer you know put a curve here and uh and this here and this here and flattened out those rivets 
to reduce the drag, um, now we're we're putting stuff on that wing and we're just changing the whole shape of the wing. Yeah, definitely drag is a huge problem. Any of that ice on anything, even antennas or you know anything sticking out, is going to cause both weight and drag for sure. That could be a big problem. Um, another problem is induction ice. Uh, all these planes that have a a little something in the front, probably under the under the bottom side of the cowling there, right below the prop, that probably is the intake, the induction air coming in. It's got most of mine, I think, have a little aluminum filter with another filter behind that. Right? If you're flying through freezing moisture, it's not going to take much for that to be frozen over. And what's that going to do for your for your airplane, Wally? Well, now, now you're not getting airflow into the engine. Yeah, so we need air, gas, and spark to make fire in those cylinders. And if we don't have air, we're losing power, significant power. Our mixture could be, you know, the way we have our mixture set up, we might not be getting much air already, depending on what altitude we're at. So um, we would definitely need to uh, think through that and not fly in icing conditions very long at all in these little planes for sure. What happened to Dominic? The, the pitot tube, uh, if you get ice really over the inlet, the drain, all of the point, all the ports on a pitot tube, uh, if they freeze up, you're going to see some really awkward things that are going to blow your mind inside the cockpit. Um, and it's not going to be natural, and you're going to get really disoriented really, really quick. So as he said, don't forget to use the pitot heat for sure in any of that. We talk about the shape of the wing. What happens? What happens to wings that don't create lift anymore? They create stalled wings, and in a stall with ice on our plane, that's going to be. Assuming we're in IMC, that's going to be almost impossible to recover from. Um, many, many sad stories about something similar to that. I'm sure. Um, and then I, I would say the last one that I think of, I guess because it's kind of a trick question that we'll probably discuss is the reduced visibility on the windshield, right? If we get ice on that windshield, we're not going to be able to see very well. And that brings us to what kind of anti-icing systems do we have in the airplane, Wally? Do we have any in a Cessna 172? Yeah, we absolutely do. We, we usually have three. And um, again, this is something that we talk about on private commercial instrument check rides. And um, I, I asked the question, you know, what kind of anti-icing do we have? And a lot of times it starts out with, we don't have any. And then I say, really? And then they go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then they start thinking about it. So um, the one that, that we probably think about first is the pedo heat. Um, I would venture to say that this, most of us have maybe never turn the pitot heat on in a small airplane. Um, for those of us who live down here in the south, um, very possible. Um, but we, we probably think of that first. Um, the second one that we would probably think about in a carbureted air airplane would be carb heat. We probably use that a lot. Um, but the one that, that most people don't really think of is the defroster, um, because if you get ice on that windshield, the visibility is going to go to it's going to go significantly down in a hurry. And 
you know, I've, I've been in situations where we've had to use it in small airplanes and really the defroster, um, it, it, it gives you, if we, from a percentage standpoint, the visible, uh, area on a typical windshield, I mean, the defroster probably clears out maybe 15%. So you've, you've got a little hole to look through, but it is, it's better than nothing. You, it does give you something to look through. Yeah, that was an interesting question for me when I, again, low time pilot. Um, I think, I think I knew about the pedo tube and then you wouldn't get asked that for a while. And the carp heat is obviously a second answer, but the defroster is a big one. Um, and I, I don't know that the just cabin heat alone wouldn't do you some good in a situation like that to maybe break off something on the other windows or whatever. I, I think I would use all available resources at any point. Um, in a situation like that, for sure. Okay, so we talked a little bit about it, the ways that the, the ice could impact your uh, airplane. Dominique told us a story of flying into inter- inadvertent ice. Hopefully it never happens to y'all uh, listening, but I think a, a short checklist of things to think about, a short list of things to put on your list would be, obviously, pedo heat. Um, if you... If you didn't have ice on your plane 10, 10 minutes ago, five minutes ago, and you start getting ice on your plane, I would think it's a pretty safe bet, not always a for sure thing, but a pretty safe bet that if I turn back, I'm probably going to be in warmer weather. Um, I think, you know, we live on the coast, and I, I tell this story all the time because it, it, it happens. I know when, I know weather pretty well, or I know what weather's coming pretty well because I own a flight school. But every day, if it's freezing in College Station, which is about an hour and a half from here, car driving, it's going to be freezing here before lunch, right? So that cold front's always going to come through College Station to, to, to Spring, Texas. It's never going to start in the Gulf of Mexico and then come to Spring, Texas. Well, where do we fly 95% of our flights? We fly northwest, west to northwest. And so things can be nice and warm here, but we're probably flying almost every day into colder weather because the cold fronts naturally come from the north and they're going to come that direction. So we have to be logical and think about that. But if we turn back, we're probably going to get closer to the coast and probably have warmer weather. Um, Use all heating options that you have available to you. We just talked about those. Cabin heat, defrosters, anything and everything. Um, would probably help you. I think the induction ice is one that um, really we need we need an engine. So induction ice and carb heat, whatever we can do to make sure we don't lose any power in our aircraft. And then it is creating a plan to land. And these aircraft, we ain't got much time to think about it. We ain't got much time to mess around with it. the The goal is to to come up with a plan to get on the ground as quick as possible, and that's probably doing some flight planning in the cockpit and getting on the ground for sure. The longer you fly in it, the more weight you're going to have, the more drag you're going to have, less performance you're going to have. I read some other stories preparing for this show where people are flying at 2,000 feet MSL with ice on their their airframe, and they got full power, and they're barely going 70 knots, right? And that's a scary situation if you think about what that means you you have you have nothing left before you're going to start stalling hardly in these aircraft right so 
You're going to need a bigger runway. You're going to need a lot of things when it is time to land. The all things to be thinking about. Uh, and it's not something just because you live in Houston, Texas, that you shouldn't think about or some other really hot climate. Uh, you never know when it could sneak up and get you. So do, do your preparing and make sure you know where the icing levels are. And if there's going to be any visible moisture, you got to be aware of it for sure. Anything to wrap up with Wally as we close out this show? No, no. Um, you know, uh, the best thing for, for most of our airplanes uh, that we need to know about icing is is don't get in it. But if you do get in it, um, you know, here are some, some techniques. And, um, you know, for gosh sakes, when, when, when you're out there and you, you have incidents, you know, let's, let's keep sharing them because this that's how we learn and you know we can learn we can read theory um but i think we all learn and enjoy more hearing real world stories yeah and that's a great point that's what i'll wrap up with if something does happen i don't think you should be afraid or fear the faa or fear the criticism like wally said share it but if you have made a mistake file a nasa report um by filing a nasa report you 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 should be doing something to prevent your certificates from being suspended or revoked as long as these four rules apply, that uh, the violation that you're reporting was inadvertent and not deliberate, that you weren't involved in a crime or an accident, that evidence shows that you did it within a timely manner, uh, and that that it doesn't get in a bigger situation in the next five years, right? So um, by all means, file a NASA report if you do something that – uh, is it all something that could help others learn from and maybe was a violation, but you didn't do it intentionally and it could save your certificates for sure. And with that, sounds doom and gloom. With that, we'll say fly safely and stay behind the prop. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening and remember, fly safe.